Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. All right, on to our reader for tonight. Hilton Alls is an ever-insightful, acclaimed staff writer and theater critic for The New Yorker. He was a staff writer for The Village Voice and editor-at-large at Vibe. He published his first book, The Women, in 1996. Alls traverses the art, theater, literary, and academic worlds with thoughtfulness and grace, a truly important contemporary thinker. White Girls is the first book I read upon moving to LA from Chicago four months ago. Maybe it was moving, the actual displacement, nervousness, excitement, terror, joy, soul-searching that drew me to his work. Those themes are there, but it's so much more. I gave it to my sister for Christmas, a white girl, but so much more. Lent it to my friends, some white, some black, queer, straight, but all of them so much more. From the New York Times to Chicago Tribune to Juno Diaz, White Girls has received some awfully high marks. For me, this is a wonderful book, a reminder that we are all so much more. Anyway, thanks again for coming, and without further ado, Hilton Alls. Um, thank you so much for... Oh, wow, thank you. Um, wow. Um, this reading, um, I might embarrass them deeply. Um, I wanted to dedicate to three women tonight, um, two of whom are here, Lily Tomlin and Jane Wagner, to celebrate their marriage. Right. Um, after 40 years... Um, we just had sand dabs together and they didn't know I was going to do that. And um, also uh, the son of an, a woman who was enormously important to readers and writers the world over. Um, that would be the late Barbara Epstein and her son Jacob is here this evening. Um, so, so we're all in marvelous company. And um, it occurred to me um, during this visit to Los Angeles that my actual whole family lives here now. Um, Annie, little Annie was the bridge going back and forth, to New York to Los Angeles, but she's here now. So my entire family, um, chosen and loved, is here. Um, so maybe I'll find myself here shortly. But in the... Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, but in the meantime, I wanted to um, say 
hello and goodbye to a couple of people um, that I've written about in the book, some of whom you've known um, and loved in New York. Uh, and I love them too. And so it's a way of saying hello and introducing them and also saying goodbye. <clears throat> um, this is from the first section, which is called Trees Tropique. And it's describing a friendship um, with a, a friend. Um, we met in 1982. I was 22. He's seven years older, and the only time I effectively left our twinship for a time was in 1992. That year, my beloved Kay died from AIDS. He was diagnosed in 1990, and I spent 1990, 1991, and 1992 in a kind of couple days. I'd look on as old men walked down city streets arm in arm with their wives. I would watch babies resting on their mother's bellies in patches of grass and sunlight in Central Park. I would watch cigarette smoking teenagers glittering with meanness and youth, whispering and laughing as they shopped on Lower Broadway. These exchanges of intimacy were all the same to me because they excluded me that twin who somehow lost his better half. I was an I, an opera of feeling with a very small audience, a writer of articles about culture but with no real voice, living in a tiny one-bedroom apartment in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, a dream of love growing ever more expansive because it was impossible, especially in the gay bars I sometimes frequented in Manhattan, where AIDS loved everyone up the wrong way, or in a way some people weren't surprised by, particularly those gay men who were too indifferent to be sad. In any case, night sweats were part of the conversation people weren't having in those bars. In any case, taking your closest friend in because he was shunned by his family was part of the conversation people weren't having, having still. There was this to contend with, that friend's shirt collars getting bigger. Still, there was this to contend with, his coughing and wheezing in the little room off your bedroom in Brooklyn because TB was catching. Your friends didn't want you to catch it. Loving a man was catching. Your friends didn't want you to get it. His skin was as thin as onion skin. There was a lesion. He couldn't control his shit. Not, not to mention the grief in his eyes. He didn't want to catch that. Those blue eyes filled with why, causing one sphincter to contract, your heart to look away. A child's question you couldn't answer. What happened to our plans? Why was the future happening so fast? You didn't want to catch that, nor the bitterness of the sufferer's family after the death, nor the friends competing for a bigger slice of the death pie after the sufferer's death. You certainly didn't want to catch what it left, night sweats, but in your head and all day, the running to a payphone to share a joke, but the numbers disconnected, your body forgets or rushes toward the love you remember, but it's too late. 
He's closer to the earth now than you are, and you certainly don't want to catch any of that. So, you search, like some latter-day Frankie Adams in Carson McCullers, the member of the wedding, for your we of me, but at a distance. Your we could be dying, but so filled with love. All those couples in the park, dancers in the street, unlike you, so resentful of the romantic strain love engenders, the pulverizingly tedious self-absorption loss wraps you in. I was subjected to that. This is what it meant to me. The ego, what a racket. And what of the person who actually disintegrated and the imprint of his sad eyes and rotten luck in your living atmosphere of air and buildings? Here's only you to go by now, to stay awake to the memory of his toes and small buttocks in those jeans, the sound of his heels on the floor, and what it sounded like when he said we, as you lay in bed holding his dying in your now relatively well-ordered world of health and well-being. And then the um, second thing I'll read is um, a, a woman who was connected to those uh, two characters that I just described and myself. But in 2007, someone did die. She was one of my first eyes and integral to all the years I've described. I've waited until now to talk about her because that's the way she would have wanted it. She was a great believer in traditional story structure and would say, apropos her appearance here, what readers crave most, what fills them up, is the story of love and how it ends. As a spoken word critic, one of the very best, she knew what was real when she read it because she trusted her gut. Indeed, she had a great interest in her gut. She was always thin, but she ate more food than any human I have ever known. Even after she got sick, she longed for me to describe a dinner party that I'd attended. She licked her lips. I'm always hungry, she said. She came to the first reading I ever gave at my college, and while I read, she sat in the front row with her then boyfriend eating a hoagie. <laughs> After the reading, she said that I needed more stuff behind me while I read to lively things up, you know? Lights, a video, but I'm getting ahead of my story. She was our first home. No, she was our tree. And we hung in her young branches, our bodies swinging like flags in a permanent sweet chill. Then a little sunshine through the branches, some bird sounds, and maybe Jesus floating beyond the birds. No, she was our ground, and we would die to be closer to her. No, she was a white girl, whatever that means. No, she was colored because she preferred colored men to most white people. No, she was words, and they always came up short against her presence. And if you were a poet whose vocation it is to take the words from out in between other wo words and relish white space, 
then you would be more suited to the task of relaying who she was, as Wallace Stevens seemed to do when he wrote in 1947, 12 years before she was born and 60 years before she died in his poem, So-and-So Reclining on Her Couch. She floats in the air at the level of the eye, completely anonymous, born as she was at 21, without lineage or language only, the curving of her hip as motionless gesture, eyes dripping blue, so much to learn. What can I tell you about her that might not sound trite by comparison? Well, there are mundane de details that don't diminish her. She loved proper storytelling, the details and hidden meanings and facts and all. But let me just say that the details, how we met, how she and SL met, how she died, how SL and I died, diminished me, or rather, the whole storytelling enterprise does. Words limit things. That's what I told her once. We were sitting in her little house near a pond on Long Island. She had said goodbye to Manhattan years before, but she was made for New York. She was beautiful and made no sense, and made perfect sense, just like Greenwich Village or the Bronx. We were sitting in her little house and she was so sick. Jesus, help her. And I was saying how much I loved her without telling her that because that's how we taught, by not talking. We didn't want speech to limit us. Instead, we did things like making a chicken. Or the first time we had SL come over to her place in New York and to accommodate his vegetarianism, a gratin dauphinoise. Sitting in her house, I could not say how much I loved her, even though time and her body were saying I wouldn't have many more opportunities to do so. But we never talked much, and as SL said during that time, why start now? SL understood intuitively, which is the best way to understand anything, my thoughts on that particular subject. If I said I loved her, it would limit her to my love just as a tree, once described, becomes a tree or you're a tree. I always wanted others to know her and cherish their perspective of her. That would mean there was more of her in the world. How marvelous. And other men aside from SL and myself who felt as one of my boyfriends felt when he said after meeting her, whatever that girl has, someone should bottle it. Let me just say one reason I can talk about this at all is because of SL and Mrs. Vreeland, as I called her. They wanted my eye more than most other things. And what is writing but, but an eye insisting on its point of view? Fuck them for making me do it. Fuck them and love them for making me do it. Let me just say, I never wanted my love or language to limit her and relegate her vibrancy but that's what time and illness did anyway, confine her body to a wheelchair. Such sadness, I can't even tell you. Imagine Holly Golightly or Sally Bowles or Maxine Falk or Vera Cicero in the 1980 film, 1984 film The Cotton Club, infirm, not walking down the street or swimming with their boys in the sea, sick and feeling useless to themselves after all those years of creating such lasting, vibrant images in someone's mind. Artists and writers for the most part 
images that might include this one. A city girl walking somewhere, sometimes with a purse in hand, her fur wrap pulled tightly around her, a little snow falling, the memory of a lover's kiss somewhere on her person, so many opportunities. Sometimes life offered a quick synthetic fix that felt like a million roses smothering them, but then nothing. And that remarkable white girl rose from that temporary death to soldier on, and then her body struck down by some uncontrollable internal malady. And tell me, SL or someone, what's left of that body and its own memories, the beautiful things artists who admired her made out of her. Wallace Stevens got it right when he said, in so-and-so reclining on her couch, that his white girl was actually, quote, this mechanism, this apparition, suppose we call it projection A. I can't write one complete sentence about her because she was her own complete sentence, and her sentence about herself was better than anyone else's because she uttered it sort of without thinking while thinking too much. I can't tell you how unusual that is in a world where, nowadays, no one leaves the house without some kind of script. Still, her brilliance was in part contingent on knowing how the New York City script, a story of youth and ambition and race and blood and money works and needs to work in order to be a story and therefore of value to other people. The human mind cleaves to details and what happened next so it can imagine what happened next. And I haven't even told you enough of the story so you can imagine who she was and take it from there. She was a white girl who, while growing up in New Jersey, <clears throat> read Kurt Vonnegut and listened to punk music and jazz. In high school, she sported a beret a la Ricky G. Lee Jones. She was a newspaper freak and, as a young woman, wrote letters in support of Rajneeshapuram, despite the facts. She wanted to protect the faithful from the faithless. She regarded SL's, she regarded SL's vegetarianism as a kind of faith, and she admitted it. But how could she give up her belief in bacon? <laughs> Her attraction to men who had language was profound. Sometimes she'd visit me at the weekly newspaper I worked at back in the day because she was also drawn to a pasty gay journalist who spread his body anywhere there was available space. She called him the answer grape because he looked like a grape and he had all the answers. <laughs> She was the daughter of Europeans, immigrants who survived a world war to find something like stability in North America. And their survivalist instincts may have contributed to her own, which included being very protective of her fun. When she was up to no good, you could see it on her face. So, to some extent, she was always an innocent, albeit one who thought, you could consider doing the right thing, but you could consider doing the wrong thing, too. For as long as I knew her, she walked a moral balance beam in high heels without chalking up her hands. She was as interested in, interested in sometimes falling off that beam on a friend's bad side as well as their good side. Thank you.
um, she was a great person and one of the things um, that I discovered as I was uh, reading parts of the book in New York was that she was so present in um, so many aspects of the women that I was writing about, particularly the Louise Brooks section, um, which is really about not being interested in doing anything. And my friend um, went to the doctor once and uh, he asked her why she was so tired. She was on a operating thing, I mean, a examination table. He said, are you working too hard? She said, no, I'm just lazy. So she had this extraordinary um, honesty and something that I find completely captivating, which is that she had a great interest in her own response to things. Um, so I just know she's here and, and being very amused uh, by the proceedings. And so I just want to thank you for, for knowing both of these people this evening. They were great people in my life. Thank you. Uh, I, I agree to Q&A. <laughs> um, so you can't be shy. Um, it's just mortifying to stand here and wait for questions. <laughs> so you have to be very brave and very, very uh, present and ask something. All right, shut it down. No, just kidding. Um, Tim, anything? Yes, he knew these people. Okay. Um, yes. Oh, this is a great authoress, Evgenia Sikowitz. Huh. Oh. Oh. Ooh. Um, well, money. It starts with money. Um, um, this uh, book um, happened because I missed a lot of people. And I was reluctant to do a, a traditional collection of things, of my work. And the best collections, like the White Album or Notes of a Native Son, has one sort of big piece of writing that unifies the whole book. And um, so the f section that I just read from, I wrote very quickly in a, about a three-month period. Um, and once I'd written it, I could see that the characters had existed in other areas, um, other pieces I had written. So that's how it came about. <laughs> what made you publish um, Jean-Michel Basquiat photo on your Facebook page? Oh, um, isn't it beautiful? Um, I think it's, um, it was the beauty of his baby thighs, um, meaning that he was, um, the photograph, he, ap he appears in the book. Um, and I didn't get to read about him tonight, but he was involved with the woman that I was writing about. And we met, he and I met totally separately, and then we met again because of her. And so it was the memory of that time um, that made me put the photograph up. Yeah. Have a look. Yeah. Yes, hi. Uh, money. Oh, it's my favorite answer to anything these days. Um, but I, I feel so loved here. Um, I think New York, 
in some way, I don't feel that I'm seeing it anymore. I've lived there for so long, and so many pe the people that I loved, that I describe in the book, are no longer there. So it's a kind of it feels like treading water in some strange way, and um, I think it's well. I still have some movement in my arms and legs. I should try something else for a little while. No. <laughs> yes. Uh, why write about uh, these people now? Is there, are you at a point in your life or in the grieving process where you felt that it's important to talk about these people in one place? Um, um, I think that w one of the, the hard things about writing always is uh, letting go of something. Um, and I think that writers write on some profound level to understand how they, their response to something and also to leave it behind once they've responded to that by finishing the story or poem or whatever. Um, these people were so profoundly in me that I realized when I started writing that I wasn't losing them, that I was just writing a a song, really, um, about what it felt like to be with them. And so in order to describe that, I had to describe what, it, what their deaths were like, and then, then, and then double back and talk about their lives. Um, they were just fabulous people. And um, I think taught me a lot, particularly that section where I was writing about not limiting things from, by language. This is a person that I knew d deeply, this woman deeply and intimately since I was 19 until we were in our late 40s. And I don't think we maybe spent an hour on the telephone um, talking. Um, she, <laughs> this is a funny story about her. Um, so she liked the guy SL and she was very ashamed that she was a, like hamburgers and stuff. And, um, and so one day we all went out drinking. They weren't together yet. And she went to McDonald's near her house and came out of McDonald's eating hamburger. And she said, oh my god, I just ran into your friend. And I said, oh, that's fine. Don't worry. He's not judgmental that way. And she said, very paranoid all of a sudden. She said, well, you haven't told me, told him, um, about my 200 lovers, have you? And I said, well, that's a rather conservative estimate. <laughs> Click. <laughs> and they became involved. So <laughs> she was uh, fast on the draw. Um, another story that um, he likes to tell, and I didn't get to tell in the book, was um, <laughs> they were having a quarrel on the telephone. It was the best lover's quarrel I've ever heard in my life. And they were quarreling. and. Um, he put the phone down and I said, oh, what happened? And he said, um, I said to her, do you want me to hang up on you? And she said, no. She said, here, let me help you and hung the phone down. So she was very witty about the draw. Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, so, sorry, Michael. Go, please. Um. Me too. <laughs> Makes two of us. Okay. I started reading, I'm not quite sure, a couple days ago, but um, I was just telling someone today that one thing it sort of reminded me of, mm -hmm. hearing you talk about 
I've never read that, but yeah. should I? Yeah. Okay. It's one of my, it's, it's one of my favorite autobiographies. It, it, for two reasons. One, um, the idea of finding your twin. Yes. Path, and it's so interesting because in the beginning he talks about being a young man and being different. And so he develops um, an imaginary friend, almost like his twin. Mm -hmm. And his friend stays with him until he, he kind of develops these friendship and bonds in the trenches and right. all that is all about the, the end of an era the end of innocence yes yes and this is very much tied to the New York in, in the um, late 70s and early 80s. And I can see why you would feel that there were parallels. At first, I didn't know why. And I was telling someone that to me. And I'm like, I, something about it um, reminded me of that. And I ran to my bookshelf. Huh. I kind of read the first. It's been about 10 years since I read it. And I kind of read the first pages. And, and I just had the same connection where here hearing him tell his story um, and talking about this friend he made or this twin reminded me so much oh, of wow. the first 20 or maybe 30 pages. Oh, I'll pick it up then. It's nice, to, it's nice to know because then you feel that you've made a new friend. <laughs> it was, totally yeah. but you just have, I can't explain it, but you just have such a, a beautiful, lovely way of talking about your friend. Oh. Oh, I really love them. Yeah. Well, well, you know, there's that. It's funny because there's an image about um, that has always been very striking to me about World War um, people who were killed because of gas, being gassed, and there were these amazing pictures of them, sort of contorted in a kind of agony. And um, I forget what, it's a particular term, but anyway, I was so moved by it because. It wasn't too far away from what I experienced in these friendships, and my friends just mean everything to me, really. Um, how lucky are we that we get to choose people who love us back? Wow. Those nice ladies, and, and uh, among other people. You know, people who are very kind. And it, sure, it gets complex, and there are, um, moments of anger and all of that stuff, but we're still in the realm of having chosen this argument and this joy. Michael, you had a question. When you write about people who are still alive, mm -hmm. does the writing alter them? Wow. Well, I think it alters me. Um, you know, there's that great Dionne Arbus quote where she says, instead of, when I stand in front of something, I don't arrange it, I, I arrange myself. And um, I think I rearrange myself to suit the subject. I think it's very, that's why it's very difficult for me to do profiles, um, because I actually have to become the person for a time to understand them. So in The Women, there's Dorothy Dean, and I didn't understand how to write about her at all until I realized that alcoholics have hangovers. And if you're hungover, you're in a bad mood all day until you can relieve that somehow. So in my Stanislavski writing, I was drunk for a week, <laughs> but then 
realized I was really cranky and it gave me the character. So I arranged myself around the character. Yes, hi. Oh, thank you. There was a moment, and I sent them some things, but um, I have to say that Dave Eggers was such an incredible editor on the project, um, and he was like, no, 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 and then you have the customary fighting about the cover. It was a picture that I'd always wanted, which is on the cover now, um, and he felt the Truman Capote picture was enough, and the rest would be diluted um, if we had too many photographs, so. Oh, yes, hi. Oh, wow. Um, uh, when I worked in fashion, I, you'd be backstage and you would often hear designers or uh, production people talk about the black models as black girls, and they never said white girls about the white models, or they never said the Chinese girl. So it always stuck in the back of my mind as a thing. And then one day, I was walking with a young friend in New York, and he said that my editor um, at, the, at the New Yorker said, oh, maybe Hilton should do a book in two parts. One would be um, black men, and the other part would be white girls. And I said, ha, 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 I'm just going to write a book called White Girls. And, and I did. <laughs> That's the real short answer. But I wanted to do a, a, a title. We had always had a lot of self-defining black books, like um, James Weldon Johnson's Autobiography of a Colored Man and Richard Wright's Black Boy and uh, Toni Morrison's Tar Baby. And they, they felt very, you, you knew what the book was somehow before you entered the book. And so if you use a title that doesn't define you, then there's m much greater freedom for you and the reader to imagine, I think. Um, hello. Um, I think everybody wants to go home and have their pesto and, or drink wet, white wine is what they do in LA, right? Yes. 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 And that made you think of me? Oh, wow. Oh man, it's such a deep, it's such a deep uh, rooted thing for me. I think it means um, understanding even when it's fucked up. And uh, putting the phone down and knowing that in a few days it's going to write itself because you'll miss each other. So um, it's a, an immense feeling of love even in that person's self-absorption or yours. Um, the love overrides the limitations of the ego. I think that's what friendship is for me. So I'm just as annoying as my friends are, and we learn from that. And we just go to our separate 
corners and read beautifully and are quiet for a little while and then we come back together. It's a little thing that dances around friends, I think. Thank you. Oops. There's, sorry. One, one more. Oh, I love that book, but it was deeply irritating to me. Um, I love it too, and I just never it's a, it's a, uh, um, they're asking Jane about um, why did I write about Malcolm X's mother, and um, and I said it had uh, it had to do with my being irritated by that book, and he, he talks about his mother for three pages or something, and the father that he never really knew for many many pages, and. Um, I thought that the parental stuff was, uh, the balance was completely off and it was a way for him to do a kind of macho memoir. And um, she was a, just a very interesting character to me, but a footnote in the history of his life. And I don't want you to reduce me to a footnote, so I'm going to let you go. <laughs> so that evening can end in elegance, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.